0: Okay, let's take our Bibles again this morning, and we're looking this morning at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking today at verse 3 through verse number 8. Let's pray Lord thank you this morning for bringing us here today and Lord allowing us to have another breath to be able to be with your people in your church and I pray Lord as as we think of that I pray Lord that we would always have joyful thoughts when we think about the gathered church and the Word of God and how Lord, we have very special things given to us from our Lord. I pray, Lord, we'd never think lightly of those things or take for granted of those things. But always, it should well in, up in us, Lord, a, a joyful and a thankful and a humble heart. Lord, so today make us people who are ready to hear and ready to put into practice the word of God. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 1, and I want to read verse 3 through 8. It says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understand the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, as I've been mentioning all along that there are some troubling things going on in this church that philosophical heathenism and Judaism and elements of Christian teaching have been kind of mixed together in one pot, Uh, usually actually from just one teacher, and that teacher was causing people to stray away from the faith. And so... A papyrus comes, and he tells Paul what's going on, and then Paul writes the book of Colossians. And Because one of the main things that are happening here in this book is that the root doctrine being uh, tipped over is it's robbing Jesus of his central place and his um, his first place in the church. And so... Paul, actually, the whole book, is he's dismantling this false teaching. He's doing it in a different way. He's not shooting from the hip. He's coming around the corner. But it's like a, two machine guns just constantly being fired at this false teaching, and he just dismantles the whole thing by the time he gets to the end of the epistle. Now, Christ is living in the body, this new, new body called the church, and this church forms a new humanity, and in this new, new humanity, the Lord is transforming us, that all the old ideas about life, about God, about everything, actually, and the way of salvation is being turned over, and God is replacing it with all things that are new. So the gospel really does make all things new it really does if if you experienced that already in your Christian life then you will continue to experience it the rest of your Christian life because it is that miraculous when the Lord does that and so from last time just to bring you up to speed we saw that the gospel instructs us in our new position that our new position is that we are Saints that we are set apart inwardly we are set apart outwardly that in our new position We are faithful brethren in Christ, verse number 2, and because we are saints, we have a manifold grace that is heaped upon us as believers, and as saints and faithful brethren, we have also been granted multiple facets of God's peace that is available to us, where we get the sense that God is our friend, not our enemy any longer, and that we have the peace now in this world and during this time of living, and we also will have it in eternity. That is something that brings great comfort. Also, our, new, our position in Christ is, is that we have a new source, and that source is in Christ. Our new identity uh, in verse number 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are colossi, grace and peace, God our Father and the source of this new identity and this new creation is God himself we are old things are passing away and behold all things become new so that in Christ we find ourselves in a new position in a new sphere in a new way of thinking in a new lifestyle and uh, that God is not simply patching up the old he is creating new we are just he is discarding old things and we are too and it means that we are casting it aside so we don't know no longer want it to be part of our life anymore we we have left and turned from our old way of life and now we're walking in this new new way of life so we're newly created in christ and that that continues our whole uh pilgrimage throughout this world So this false teacher and his teaching has made it possible for people to be comfortable in their old life, in their old Adamic nature, so that they still remain in Adam. They're not in Christ. There is no new things going on for the disciples of this false teacher. And so for to be lured away from something old, something new, Back to something old could be very destructive. And that's the sense that we're looking at in Colossians is that these people are being tempted to go back to the old way of life, the old way of doing things. And so he's writing and he's saying to them, no, you have new things going on. Don't go back to the old garbage heap. Stay walking on the path that God's given you. So we see today that the gospel really induces a new progression to life. In other words, progression means that there is spiritual movement going on in our life. There's new developments going on in our lives. When? Since we came to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There's new things going on. You know, some of the new things were surprising to me. I remember when I first came and get involved in ministry, you know, you, you have your little groups of people that you hang out with and you're close to and you do a lot of things with. But when you come into the church, all of a sudden, there's all kinds of groups of people. There all, there's all kinds of cultures. There are all, all kinds of people that come from different races. And so for most of us, that's new. Because usually we don't necessarily mingle with people that are different from us. We don't do it. It's not that we consciously say, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's just that we naturally just don't do it. We gravitate to people that are like us. And so one day I, I get invited to a meal from a family that was from Ghana. And I never had plantain. And I never had a meal from somebody who lived in Ghana and now is in the United States, and they're believers, and I, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is new. I've never had this before. I never thought the Christian life would bring those kind of new things in it to, to meet people I would never have met or even had anything to do with somebody from Ghana because I don't even know anybody from there. And now I come into the church, and I meet people from this culture and from that culture and from this culture, and from that background, and from this race, and that's exciting. That's exciting, and that is new. And that is part of the newness that comes into the church, is that we have relationships with people now we would never have had if we didn't come to Christ. Because Christ, what he does, is he breaks down all those barriers. So we don't see each other as, oh, you're from that culture, and you're from that race, and, oh, you do those things, and you have that kind of dress. We don't look. God breaks all that down, so we look at people as just people who have red blood running through their veins. They were sinners just like us. They met Christ. They were changed, were changed, and now we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. See, that's new. And you know what? That's radically new. And you know what that brings to us? A thankful heart. So the first progression that happens when somebody truly gets saved is they progress into a life of thankfulness. Look what it says in verse number 3. It says, We thank God. It says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, on the surface, that would seem just like a regular greeting. The main verb of that text is give thanks. And the present tense points to the ongoing nature of the gratitude. This is not just giving thanks once, this is giving thanks all the time, every day. Ingratitude is a great sin. Gratitude is also a good test to examine how well you and I are doing spiritually. Saints are distinguished in their character by giving thanks for all things. One day I was in Hobby Lobby and I saw a sign that says whining. Whining, five dollars. I bought that (laughs) I point out to my grandkids look some people are going to be broke (laughs) because all they do is whine you know that's one thing you ought to cut out out of your dictionary as a Christian because there's no room for whining it's quite amazing quite amazing when you have a group of people that have such extreme differences in their social, economic, cultural, and religious standing in this world and then you come together as one unified group which holds to one common faith because of Jesus Christ. That is impossible in a sinful world. What groups am I referring to? referring to as as far as the text this morning, I'm referring to the groups so different they most likely would have nothing at all to do with each other. If it wasn't for the gospel, groups that go out of their way to make very distinct boundaries among themselves so that they will have no dealings or contacts with another group of people. If you look at Colossians chapter three and verse number eleven, I want you to think this morning. This morning, and how radical this scripture is. If you notice what it says, it re, and in fact, this scripture remains radical even in any cultural where there's a melting pot of different people groups. Look at verse eleven, chapter three. It says, "A renewal in which." There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Are you kidding? Jew and Greek? They never come together. I read We read the passage of Scripture this morning in Acts about Paul going to Macedonia. A lot of work had to be done on Paul before he would go there, and that he would go to Gentiles and bring the gospel. See, Paul was a work of God. And then, again, in our passage, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but all are in Christ and in all. See, this, it shows how radical and how powerful and how miraculous and how superior the gospel of Jesus Christ really is and still is, and this very thought is, is going against this false teacher and what he's teaching. To make these one unified body in Christ is impossible. So the Apostle Paul, what does he do? The Apostle Paul gives thanks and he prays for people he once hated. He once dragged to jail. He once approved of it if they were being sentenced to death and stood by watching the people's garments as people threw stones at Stephen and stoned him to death. That was in the approval of the council and Paul who was driving their method of how to get rid of the way or the church. So how does such a change happen in someone? It surely doesn't happen by itself. There has to be a power that can change the dark and the dead human heart into something that is living and something that is newly thankful for the things for things they would have never been thankful for before and that is especially in the area of people being thankful for people Created in the image of God. Now newly brought into the family of God. Your whole mindset has to change. There is no room for racism in that mindset. It must be cast out. You cannot hold on to that at all anymore. We are all one in Christ. And you would think that to be thankful should be something easy to do. But it is not. It is easy when all is going well. But what happens when the bottom drops out and it's not going so well? There's a famous painting depicting a subject on it in gratitude. And it shows a large statue which has inscribed at the base of it Ingratitude. Surrounding this gigantic statue are men and women throwing stones at it. And yet if you look closer at this picture, you, this uh, painting, you'll notice that each of the people that are throwing stones at this statue named Ingratitude has cradled, or Gratitude, has cradled in their left arm a tiny replica of the statue also marked ingratitude. In other words, the lesson, of course, of this picture is that each of us may detest ingratitude in general and in principle and in others, but there is an element of ingratitude in all of us. And that is one of the things the Spirit of God is going to drive from us. And he's going to replace it with something quite new. And it's this word, being thankful. We may need to conclude that there is much ingratitude in our life than there is genuine gratitude. But be sure of this, that the gospel is Received by faith and rightly understood causes one to be thankful in ways they are not common, that it's not common actually to sinners, especially in areas that we once were hostile in mind and in conduct. So the Apostle Paul, being a, a great example of this, had a new heart. He had new eyes to see. He saw people differently now. He no longer saw people through the lens of social and economic and cultural and their religious standing in the world. Since he met Christ, he saw people as lost, people who needed compassion because they were helpless. They were in darkness, and they they needed the glorious light of the gospel to shine in their hearts. That's how he saw the lost. That means there was no more more categories to put him in there because the scripture said to us there's no more distinction. He began to understand that. That's why he's writing this. Now, it seems like the false teachers were keeping those distinctions, not allowing other groups to be part of that group. And Paul is obliterating what they are teaching. And when he saw genuine evidence of the transforming results of the gospel in a person's life, no matter who they were or where where they came from or what their background was, he had one response. You know what that response is? Thankfulness. Now, this is a changed person. This is a new person. This is even new for Paul. And it's new for us, too. And so here are a couple of good reasons to offer up thanksgiving to God. We find them right here in our text. Verse number 3, it says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In other words, evidence of the continuous work of the Father is good reason to give expressions of thanks to him that the gratitude is directed to God, the giver of all good gifts. As father, he delights to give good things to his children, and so the gift of his son is the ultimate expression of goodness, and that should produce in anyone's heart, in ourselves and when we see it in others, thankful for saving that person. And then you find out that it's a frequent theme shared by the Apostle Paul and Timothy and others since they all became Christians, since all things become new. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the Father is receiving this thanks from this these newly born-again believers, and they are thanking him because he has given them life. He is maintaining their being. He has saved their souls. He has brought them out of darkness into light and into the church, and now they're his children, and then he gives them he makes them the heir of eternal glory. Nothing to be whining about there. And then notice in chapter 2 in verse number 7, it says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with what? Gratitude. Now just think about that in your own life. To, to be so thankful, it's running over the cup. I don't know about you, but there's no room in that cup for anything else but thankfulness. See, is that going on in your life? Or do you find yourself often grumbling and complaining and whining about what's happening in your life? See, this is new to us. And it is so new to us that we desire to have it in our heart. And then look at chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Again, it comes up. And, of course, this is the passage of Scripture in Ephesians where it's talking about, it talks about being spirit-filled. Here, it's talking about being word-filled. Look at what it says in verse number 15. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed... You were called in one body, and be thankful, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, can you sing without thankfulness in your heart? If you do, it's probably all wrong. You're just mouthing words. You're just pushing air around the room. And then notice in verse number 17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to to God the Father. In other words, you have an inward thankfulness that's working out in outward evidence. That I'm doing this thing, whatever it's my hands are, are finding to do, I'm doing with, with a heart that's thankful to God. That I'm able to use my hands and do this work no matter how dirty or messy it is. That God's given it to me. So I can pay the bills and I can dig the ditch and pay the bills. That's what God does. But I tell you what, for a Christian who's new, there's something going on inside of them. They're thankful. And their thankful is running over the top. That's what we ought to be. that's that's the newness of the Christian life. And then notice back in chapter 1, verse number 3, it says this at the end of verse number. He's now praying for them always, meaning that thankfulness and dependence on God in prayer are closely linked together that if you are thankful about something, you are going to be praying for something. If you are thankful about someone, you're going to be praying for them. So a second evidence that we find in verse number 4 of the reality of the new life that we have in Christ, and the second good reason to be thankful, if you notice, there are two points which occasion Paul's thankfulness, it's this in verse number 4, that it is the sign of faith and love in them. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. He's actually saying, listen, what happened to me is happening to you. You have now love for Christ, and because you have love for Christ, you have love for, notice, all the saints. There's no distinctions anymore. It's all the people. All the people get saved. No matter who they are, no matter what color skin they are, no matter what culture they are, no matter what social economic stratus stratic sphere they're in. Alright? If that's a word or not. But you know what I mean? It's it's all obliterated, and he's what he saw in him, he's seeing in them. You know what he's saying? This is God's work. Because nobody can do this. No religious system could do this. Only God can do this. God is the only one who could break down the barriers. He's the only one who could do it. And notice what here it says He's thankful for their faith because their faith is Christ centered, not false teacher centered. Because everything depended on the, what the teacher said. Most religions uh, pretty much can. Oc- can actually function without their main teacher but in Christianity you must have Christ as center or you don't have Christianity see Christianity is Christ he is, he's the, he is the center of it all so you don't need an endless list of angels who have to, that you have to go through to be between man and God as a false as the false teacher here taught no Christ is can bring you to God because he is God. And Christ will give you a thankful heart. So he's thanking them always for their faith in Christ. Secondly, he's thanking them for their love. Because their love is practical. And that's what love is. It's it's a verb, it's an action word. That love which you have for all the saints... And love is the identifying mark of God's presence in those who have come to experience God's salvation in Christ Jesus. As John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So love is that is divine, holds people together. It holds the church together. That's what holds the church together. Jesus said you will know them by their love. And that means, it doesn't mean what we think in America. America, love has been so abused, that word, in America. Nobody even knows what it means anymore. But here, the love is going to mean that they love Christ and his way of salvation, and they love people. My heart's been changed to love people. See, that is the work of God in the heart. If you look at chapter 3, verse number 14, it says this. It says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I like it better what it says in the ESV. It says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What does that? Love does that. So love takes all this disunity and this discord and these differences and makes harmony. Everybody's in tune because of what Christ has done. And then... We find in verse number five it says faith and love have one great basis and that is the believer's hope. Now if you notice this morning that Paul is dealing with what is called the triads of, of virtue here. You know what the triads of virtue are. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 13 faith hope and love and the greatest of these is love right. But in this epistle. He does not use that order. He uses faith, love, and hope. Hope. So, secondly, we see that those who are in Christ have a progression of a life of hope. We sang about hope this morning. But if you notice in verse number 5 what it says, it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So we believe, we must believe, in other words, before we can have hope for the enjoyment of heaven. And no person can, have, can hope for that which he does not believe. So hope is the basis of, for faith and love. And so it is the third of the triads of virtue that Paul mentions in a different order because of what is he, what he is attacking against these false teachers. That the uh, cause of the apostles' thanks is the hope that awaits the believers in heaven. The objective hope of eternal life in God's presence in heaven is the fertile fertile soil in which faith grows. So hope here is defined as a mighty certainty, which makes Christian hope so strong that it cannot be broken, and it gets stronger as we grow in the knowledge of God. That hope here is the realization that you have been called to be saints and faithful Christians, And the call came from the offer of the gospel in which you responded and repented in faith. So God brings his children from an empty, false, deceptive, dead hope to a strong, active, living hope that this hope rests on God's power and God's promise because Jesus was raised to life. We will live with him because of that. Not only now, receiving good things from him, but in eternity. So hope speaks of our response to God's promise. In other words, he offers us hope, and we can have hope in him and his guarantees that go with the hope. So then hope here is not, I hope so. I hope it happens. That's just wishful thinking. Biblical hope looks forward with other conviction and expectancy. It is not a hope mingled with uncertainty and doubt. And those who live in doubt is the opposite of living in faith Are essential and essentially denying the hope that God gives that is actually true. So some might have hope in purgatory, If there is such a place, there is not. There is only heaven and hell. For the real Christian, there is no need to fear heaven or purgatory because heaven awaits all believers. Hope always has the future in mind. It points eagerly ahead to the consummation of salvation's plan that a Christian's hope is connected with the first end-time event that has already taken place. You say, well, what's that? Well, it says in Peter, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the first end-time event because he he is the first fruits of what's going to happen and what's going to happen. We're raising from the dead, and we're going to be with him forever. So Jesus, who voluntarily left his home, and descended to an exilic-like existence on this earth. Alien and a stranger here accomplished his, res- his redemptive work on the cross, defeated Satan in death, and has returned to heaven. And where he is, we will be also. That's the promise and the hope that we have. And it's a reminder that our... Ability to arrive safely at God's home is rooted in God's mercy, and it is grounded in this great truth. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That this past end time event accomplished solely by the power of God helps us to hold fast to our hope for the future. The hope of complete salvation the author of that hope being God himself now turning back to chapter 1 again looking at verse number 5 but did you know you probably didn't know this as a believer you're enrolled in a layaway plan did you know that now a layaway plan this may be dating me a bit but a layaway plan Uh, and the reason why I know about it, because I went to the store with my mother and she did this often, Uh, they were offered by stores to those who usually had good credit. And so I remembered my mom had a lightweight plan in a store called Corvettes. That's really dating me. And it is similar to today's Bradleys or Target's. She would, uh, of course, drag me to the store, and uh, she would go and put a down payment, and let's say she bought a comforter for a king-size bed. And after the down payment was received, the store would store it away in their layaway storage area. And once the last payment was made and the purchase item was paid in full, you would take your receipt and go, uh, that was stamped paid in full, and the store would, re, would retrieve your goods from the stowaway, stowaway area, and they would bring it out to you, and you would become its new owner. Now, of course, that is a long process. Today we have credit cards, and it's right there uh, into the next day, or the next the same day sometimes with Amazon, right? It doesn't take this long. But, of course, there's a vast difference between a store layaway plan and God's plan of salvation. You don't pay for anything. And you don't pay anyone. Salvation is a free gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 For the wages of the sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. They said, Well, why'd you bring that up? Look at our passage this morning. Right here in Scripture, it tells us that God. Stored away an inheritance for us in heaven. Verse number five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That means it is set before us. It is awaiting us. It is kept for a later unveiling and for our future joy. This is not the only place that the apostles mentioned this. In Scripture, I think of 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But not only for me, Paul says, for all those who love his appearing, who are waiting and anticipating this inheritance that we have. And if we are joint heirs with Christ, as Romans says, we have this inheritance. In other words, Christ owns everything, we own everything. It's reserved in heaven. 1 Peter one four says, To obtain an inheritance which is an imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And then he goes on to say, not only reserved there, but it's protected by the power of God. This is the power only the Godhead shares, that God is the one who, who guards and keeps our inheritance for us, that God is the guardian who keeps it safe for us and keeps us safe to receive its fullness. It is treasured that is perfectly secure, that no enemy or thief can reach it. It is laid up for where... None of the changes of time can ever affect it. The Lord knows that if we were to carry it, we would probably lose it. But no, it is safe in heaven, out of reach of all that could do it violence. It's protected there. So heaven, remember, is a holy place. And that God is holy the inhabitants of heaven are holy. You must be holy in heaven or you'll not be there. And if you are not holy, then you will not receive what is reserved for you there. So see, this is the progression that's going on in the newness of the Christian life. And then there's one last thing that I'll mention and it's this the progression uh, a third thing for those who are in Christ a progression of life that clings to one superior source and what is that source chapter 5 verse number 1 that the believers hope has one great superior source and what is it look what it says let me read the whole verse 5 it says because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you were previously of which you previously heard in the word of truth here it is the gospel that is it that's the superior source for all this stuff comes to us the word of god the gospel of jesus christ the gospel of jesus christ the superior superiority of the gospel is seen In several ways in Scripture, it is seen in the whole subject and content of it. And what is that? It is true. The gospel is true. It is not a word of a guess. It is not a probable inference. It is not uh, anything but infallible truth. That's what we have. That is the basis of everything we believe. There may be other things in the world that are true, but God's word is the essence of everything that is true. And the gospel reveals to us the truth of God's grace. So these believers at Colossae heard the gospel before they heard the false teaching. So the point is, abandoning abandoning the gospel that they have heard, that they have believed, that they have embraced, would be completely disastrous and foolish. Why would you do that? You have these new things going on in your life. Why would you go back to the old way unless there was nothing doing you in the the first place? So these Colossian believers, having experience being transformed in mind and knowing the good and the acceptable and even the perfect will of god that the gospel had already taken root and was bearing fruit in their life to abandon it would be eternally foolish and it's sad to see when somebody walks away from the faith is it not have you not all saw that I've seen that in your life sometime or another. When you saw somebody, it looked like life was there. They were going. They were coming to church. They were studying the word of God. Things were changing, and all of a sudden they're gone. And then you find back they went back to their old system, their old church, their old life, right? It's sad to see. It's heartbreaking, actually. It's heartbreaking, but we see it all the time. But it does prove and does show that if there is no new life there, and it has just little root in the ground when the persec- when the troubles of life the trials of life come up it shines on that looks like that new green shoot it just withers away like the parable of the sower says right and there's no fruit at last they were never saved they, n- they were never saved they they felt the power of the gospel they felt the newness but there was no change in the heart there was no repentance where God's spirit lived in them, and now he was giving them new life. And then notice back in chapter 1, verse number 5, the superiority of the gospel is also seen in, uh, in individuals. Notice what it says, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, that the pivotal moment... When the Spirit of God illuminates the heart of a person and they not only hear the gospel, but they begin to see the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God comes in them, grants them faith and repentance, and they believe the gospel. That's the effectual call of the gospel where you cannot resist it. And you come and that at that moment, someone becomes a real believer and then everything changes about that person. And then there's a third thing about the superiority of the gospel and it's seen in its universal outreach. Notice what it says in verse number 6. It says which you have which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Now, so, the, in other words, the superiority of the gospel as opposed to the limit nature and local nature of false teachers, the gospel is going everywhere. It's universal. It's all over the world. It's in tribes you never heard of. The Mok tribe. In, in, is it in Indonesia Papua New Guinea? One of them. But these people never heard the gospel. New tribes missionaries come in there. It takes five years to get the language get an alphabet, first of all, and then to get language and then teach them their own language and then preach the gospel and the whole tribe gets saved. See, God, the gospel is going everywhere. Don't think the gospel is limited. You cannot put a cap on the gospel and hold it down. It explodes all throughout the world. It's still doing that right now. The gospel was never contained to one locale. Biblical Christianity spread rapidly through the known world at that time. That's when Paul says, you go into all the world, go into all the world with the gospel. The world, of course, was smaller. It wasn't the whole globe yet because the whole globe wasn't populated yet. But Rome probably, all those areas around the known world were infiltrated by the gospel of Christ. It went everywhere to everyone as it does today. It's not restricted to a culture. It's not restricted to a tribe. It's not restricted to a nation. It has, It is a powerful influence on all sorts of people, groups, past, present, and future. And we know, historically, all schisms and heresies are partial and local. That's all they start. They stay local. Usually, they may transform, but it's under one false leader. Everything that leader says you must follow them, and then of course you add another book onto it, the Bible plus something else, of course we want to we don't want to throw the Bible out completely. We'll just put you know the book of this and the book of that and and the traditions of that church and the traditions of these people, and they added on, no, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is going out, it is not localized it's not kept and contained in one place it's going throughout the whole world and this gospel goes through the whole world and draws I said all kinds of people the gospel is intended for everyone not just the educated or the religious elite or some special group with special or superior knowledge it's even for the great thinker and the philosopher and the fool and the naive and the scoffer it's for everybody and it should go out to everybody but the gospel truth is in direct opposition to the false teachers that their teaching is just the same old reheated repackaged religious system infiltrated with and synchronized with commandments and teachings of men filled with philosophical mumbo-jumbo nobody can really understand and packed with empty deception and laced with notions of dietary rules and harsh treatment of the bodies. This is what you do to, to make it to God. See, like a big air balloon. All one needs to do is take the gospel pin and prick it once, and it will slither through the air and finally come falling down to the ground a 1,001 pieces, and only to be placed in the scrapyard of the enemy awaiting the next repackaging and the next renaming of some other novel and cool religious and political project. And he's really good at that. And so that's why when we come to Colossians, we find that Paul says to them, let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deception." And then he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, which people who are inflated in their mind by visions. And then he says to them, listen, don't obey the commandments and the teachings of men. They will just lead you to hell. See, the gospel is the old message One that we should never get tired of hearing. The only way to be saved, to be forgiven, is to believe this message, to believe on the Son of God. And that justification is by faith only. Our works will never save us. All our good deeds are not enough. It is the gospel. And then there's one other thing the gospel does. In verse number five and six, you know what it does? Of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. You know what it does? It produces fruit in your life. That's what it does. That's the power of the gospel. That's the progression. That's the newness, holiness and godliness, Christian character, good works, passion for others, To come to Christ. The use of spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. The giving and sharing of what you have with others. And thanking and praising God. And even sinning less. And persevering in your Christian walk no matter what happens. You know one thing. I'm not walking away from this. Because as the disciple says in the gospel. Lord you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Back to Judaism? No. There's nowhere to go. But you know why? That's the best place to be. Because if you have the truth, where else is there to go? There's only other one place you're going to go, and that's heaven. And there you have an inheritance waiting for you. See, this, these are the new things that are happening. Are they happening to you? Are they still happening to you? They should be. Because that shows that you're really a Christian. If they're not happening to you, now you may have to work on some of these things, of course. no Nobody's at the same place spiritually. But if they're not happening to you, then you may have to say, maybe I'm not a believer and I need to become one today. If that's you, I want you to, want you to talk with me after the service today. But right now, we have the Lord's table. And so anybody who has not been served with the elements Put your hand up and we'll make sure you get the elements. If you are truly a believer, you have repented of your sin, you have trusted in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and that you are intending to live for him and walk in his ways, the Lord's table is a memorial feast. That's what we hold to and we believe was taught in the word of God. And it is a thing it is an uh, ordinance that God has given us in which we come together as believers and we remember the two big elements in, uh, in this uh, ordinance is the bread that represents the body of Christ that he actually came into this world, put flesh on, and went and died in the flesh on the cross for our sins, the God-man. And then it also includes an examination should be practiced faithfully before actually communion, that we, we realize that we need to examine ourselves, uh, any kind of selfishness, uh, thanklessness, greed, bitterness, any kind of sin that's in your heart that you know is there, take care of it, put it aside, put it to death, don't feed it anymore. That's part of coming to the Lord's table. In relationships, keeping your relationships growing, uh, make sure there's no hatred, animosity with each other, that you are loving people, and that you want to make things right and be a forgiving person is all part of coming before the Lord's table. God knows our heart. And then we come and we bear public testimony that Christ did die for our sins, and then the Lord's table also brings to mind the sufferings of Christ, that Christ went to great length to save us, to die in our place, to satisfy the justice of the Father, to raise from the dead, rise from the dead, defeat Satan in death, and now seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, preparing a place for us, and preparing also to come back. So that's what the Lord is doing. So that's all in the Lord's table. And then of course it brings to our mind uh, that we're to do this till he comes. Therefore, every time we gather at the table we are reminded that the Lord is coming back again and we need to anticipate that and be encouraged by that. Uh, So we look back to Calvary and rejoice in our redemption and we look forward to his coming and rejoice at the prospect of seeing him face to face. That's the promise that we have. So with that in mind, Let's take a few minutes that we can pray before the Lord, confess what we need to before the Lord, uh, and then partake of the elements that the Lord has given us. So at this time, it's a celebration, and it's it's a solemn assembly, but it's also a celebration that we're to rejoice at these things. So let's just take a few minutes.